You're listening to It's Not All Academic, a podcast that takes you into the minds and hearts of innovators and problem solvers who are reshaping our world. I'm your host, Nadine Shadia, and in this series, I'll bring you inspiring stories and thought-provoking conversations with experts from various fields. Grab your headphones and get ready to open your ears to a world beyond academia. Hello and welcome to the podcast series, It's Not All Academic, recorded right here in Ghana country, Adelaide, South Australia. A very warm welcome to my next guest, who is an accomplished change leader in challenging environments. And she's also had plenty of experience where she's walked the talk as a nurse, Catherine Zietz, the current CEO of the Central Adelaide Local Health Network. Catherine, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for the lovely introduction. So I mentioned before that you've walked the talk. You're formally trained as a registered nurse? That's correct. I was very fortunate to be, I think, about the third graduate year through the Sturt College of Advanced Education. Once I graduated as a registered nurse, I spent the first nine years of my career at Flinders Medical Centre, predominantly in the emergency department, but worked on surgical wards, moved into nurse education, and then I actually left Flinders Medical Centre when I had my first two children. And you're an alumnus of University of Adelaide as well. Is that where you did your studies? Yes. So um, I did a PhD where I looked at the nurses' collection of vital signs in post-operative care and uh, received my PhD through the nursing school at the University of Adelaide. Was the transition then from hands-on nurse component and caring for people straight into uh, managing health centre or hospital, or was there something in between? Yeah, I think uh, when I left Flinders and had my children, the beautiful Emma and James, uh, I had a number of different opportunities in my career, and then I picked up the PhD. And the PhD, as I said, focused on clinical practice, the delivery of vital signs. It was through doing the PhD that I realised that there was really a different way for us to work out how to make things better. It wasn't even a job. It wasn't even really a thing at that time, um, but I could see a lot of opportunity. When I finished my PhD, I actually got a job at the Royal Adelaide Hospital. And from there, really, this change management, clinical redesign part of my career emerged. And did you identify at any stage a desire to move from caring for the individual as a nurse to looking after and looking at the systems in which people are cared? I remember absolutely making a purposeful decision about whether I was going to continue my career as a nurse or in progressing the nursing profession versus whether I was going to go into a more generalist whole of health system leadership type piece of work. So I I do remember that. But to be honest, I don't know that there was ever a time where I thought about Mm. an individual versus a whole of system change. Yeah. Yeah. You morphed into that probably just with the experiences you'd gathered along the way. Yes. The opportunities to influence at different levels. I think it'd be useful to outline Carlin, the Central Adelaide Local Health Network, and what's included in that jurisdiction. We know the the jewel in the crown, I suppose, is the Royal Adelaide Hospital because it's the newer, shinier building, but we've also got the Queen Elizabeth Hospital out at Woodville and then some satellite sites. So uh, you're absolutely right. Central Adelaide uh, has its its centre in the Royal Adelaide. Um, Not only is it the big, bright, shiny building, but obviously it's in the centre of the city. Queen Elizabeth is our second biggest site. Um, We have uh, patient populations at Hampstead Rehabilitation Centre. 
More recently, we've established our statewide rehabilitation services on the REPAT precinct. We run a lot of our mental health services out of the Glenside campus. And then we have a really large community footprint, some of that grounded in mental health services, but also in the delivery of uh, more integrated care services at Sefton Park. So a really large footprint across the centre of Adelaide, uh, bordered in the north by sort of Wingfield and the parks, and in the south suburbs such as Plimpton, Goodwood and Unley are our sort of borders. Okay. So then either side of that, you've got Northern Adelaide Health uh, Network, Southern Adelaide Local Health Network, the Women's and Children's Health Network as well. Primary health networks are another tier above. Correct. Yep. So uh, one of the interesting things for people that are not familiar with the health system in Australia is the tiers of health system delivery. So the federal government really fund the primary health care. That is usually through Medicare. They fund your GPs and they also um, support the primary health networks, the PHNs, and they coordinate a primary care. And we have one of those uh, metropolitan in Adelaide and one that represents country. The LHNs that you describe are actually uh, uh, managed by the, they make up SA Health as the providers of hospital care and a number of other statewide services, things like Donate Life. SA Dental, uh, all of those are part of the SA Health um, health system, which is much more about that local. Yeah. And that's what comprises, I suppose, a, a federated model of healthcare delivery. There's obviously some good things about that and some more challenging things about that, which we'll delve into. But what are the types of health services provided if you were to just summarise centrally at the Royal Adelaide uh, QEH? And you've mentioned some of the mental health and rehabilitation, but the key hospitals there. So uh, we talk about quaternary and tertiary services versus the primary care services. So quaternary services include um, obviously our intensive care type services, really advanced surgery, trauma. They're generally what are offered in uh, quaternary services. And there is usually, but not always, one in a state or a population such as South Australia. Tertiary services uh, would encompass more often your general surgery, general medicine, your emergency departments, and a lot of your outpatient services are generally uh, cohorted as tertiary services. Um, rehabilitation, probably not quite tertiary, but again, it depends whether you're a really acute need of re rehabilitation or longer-term rehabilitation that may also sit in primary care. And some of that straddles your state health system and your primary health system, which is run by the federal government. I come across, and the, the version I've got was, I think, from at least 2018, maybe a little bit earlier, but the AIHW have a chart which outlines all the different areas for responsibility, expenditure, revenue, and how it's all divided up. And it's just a really big, complex overlap between all of those areas. So it gets to the heart of why solving health challenges um, for communities and populations is difficult. Uh, absolutely. And I wish that there was overlap, but I think one of the things about having different funding models and level of funding, the challenge is often around the gaps rather than the overlap. And so it can be very difficult to transition from one funded model service to another. 
and I'm not making this the specific example, but the other bit we haven't talked about is certainly aged care. And so, again, aged care is funded by the federal government, and yet if an older person in a nursing home deteriorates, they will often come to the acute care, and then at times to transition them back can be a challenge because they've had a deterioration, their care needs have changed. So it's often about the gaps and the transition. It's about people who want care at midnight and can't go to a GP, even though their need might be primary in nature. So there are many gaps. So that's a really good segue, I think, into input, throughput and output of patient flow. I've been really fortunate in my career. Um, I've spent a lot of time in looking at the delivery of health services, and I've really tried to uh, merge the operational delivery with trying to understand the why and the creating of evidence. So I've really created quite a portfolio over my career in understanding more specifically, not just operational delivery, but a real interest in patient flow. And so have published a number of papers around the whys and the wherefores and how we might be able to improve patient flow. Clearly not as successful as you would like, because clearly we have a bit of a problem at the moment with patient flow. And this is what my last (laughs) guest mentioned as a wicked problem, one for which there's no simple solution. It's difficult to define the problem. There's many perspectives and not all of them are, are, are necessarily wrong. It's just that nobody's right. So the purpose of this podcast, Catherine, probably as the name suggests, it's consumed, I think, by people with academic and innovative backgrounds. So they're they're problem solvers. And what I try to do in the course of holding these interviews is provide insight into the way systems work so that they can start to understand where they might plug in and begin to address some of those challenges. And so this is my very superficial perspective of how patient flow would work. So the input end, there's an influx through the hospital doors at, say, an emergency department. There's a period of throughput where they're moved from, say, there to a, a temporary care bed or or somewhere where they're monitored. If they're okay on the same day or the following day or whatever, if there's no admission, there's an output component as well. On face value, when I hear what politicians talk about, it's very much targeted to the front end, the input side of it. So it sounds as though they're just trying to throw more beds and more ambulances at it. By the same token, at the output end, when someone's ready to be discharged, Those places that you mentioned, whether it's palliative care, aged care, um, even back to a community living environment, they're not always ready to receive the patient as well, hence the the backflow. Do you want to give us some insight into where those challenges are beyond what we hear from typically from politicians? So obviously, more recently, the phenomenon that we talk about as ramping, which is the ability of ambulances to be able to move their patients into our emergency departments, has obviously had a lot of um, media and political attention. And it is about the inflow, the management within a hospital and the outflow. Um, I do think that maths would go a long way to solving this problem and how could we better predict and manage demand. And I also think there's a large opportunity around modelling. If you make one change, what is the influence of that change on something else? But because of the profile that it has currently, we have become a very reactive system to solving the problem. So not all solutions are well thought through or diagnosed. But the ins, the middle and the outs becomes a little bit complicated. 
sure it does. So, and that really links us back to where we started this conversation because it is about a nexus between primary health care and availability of primary health care um, and individuals' choice about when they want to access care. And so then at a hospital, we also have multiple doors. So when we're looking at our throughput, we have people coming to the emergency department. We have people who come through our outpatient department. And we also have people who are on planned waiting lists, often for elective surgery, multiple doors. Yeah. One sort of throughput, which is around your bed or your day case where you get your intervention. There can be multiple lengths of stays. Our average is around six days uh, of overnight stay. And then you're absolutely right about the outflows. But the outflows uh, and the inflows are very much affected by acuity. So you can be really sick when you come in. You can be not so sick. And it's the same when you are going out. Care needs have changed a lot during that journey. And so where you might have been going home, suddenly you now need rehab or uh, you may need to now move into aged care placement. Now, in a six-day average length of stay, sometimes it's very hard for families to start to adjust to such big decisions about changes in living arrangements when people leave. So as much as I think maths could go a long way to solving what looks like a fairly simple problem of input, throughput and output, there are a number of nuances that make it much more complicated um, in the the reality of the day-to-day management. Yeah. What I'm hearing potentially is there's an opportunity for, you talked about, you know, making changes over here. What what impact does that ho- have at the other end? Is that like a systems engineering based approach where, and maybe some digital twinning opportunities for people to have a think about? All of those, AI, all of those really fancy words that we are using, there are lots of opportunities. I think, you know, there are opportunities around how people access care in the first place. How might we have an an app that might say you could go here or there? Um, How we use technology to predict. Again, I don't know what how you want to connect some of this, but there's a team here at the Queen Elizabeth who are currently looking at how can you predict readiness for patients to be discharged uh, from a surgical cohort. And they've come up with a model called the Adelaide score that we're now at testing in real life how to predict uh, the likelihood of someone being discharged in 24 hours. We've been looking at technology about how to predict when someone comes in their length of stay, what are their risk factors, how how immediate or how long are they going to need to stay. So there is lots of opportunity. That's sort of more predictive, is that right? Yes, yep, predictive. We did do a piece of work many, many years ago at the Queen Elizabeth where we tried to put our production planning principles into the ED. You know, on average, at any point in time in the day, how many beds do you need to have ready? And mm. so then how could we preempt by having beds ready? And that whole capacity and demand matching really is the core business of a patient flow. And there are a number of products and a number of pieces of work are happening across the whole of the world to try and do that. There's so much for us to talk about. And one of the things I'm thinking is that the tech is one thing. There's a whole back-end consideration around change management for any of those technologies that are brought in. And I'm sure you have pockets of different behaviours and standards that would make implementing a system-wide change almost impossible. No, not impossible at all, I think. Um, 
the adoption of the electronic medical record. Now, I don't think that everybody loves the electronic medical record and, and often they have their own challenges and limitations. But I think if you asked maybe 95% of clinicians, would you go back to a paper record? And the answer no would chance. be no. Yep. And I more recently have spoken about, you know, when you think about when I went to school, and I'm not revealing my age, but I had Encyclopedia Britannica as my source of information. Uh, when I started work, the first piece of technology I bought with my first pay packet was a Commodore 64 okay. a computer. <laughs> so now I'm dating myself. When my children were born, we brought one of the first Nokia brick telephones. Um, and yet today I sit here with my iPhone. I can access all of that information from, you know, Encyclopedia Britannica. I can do all of my computing and printing and storage needs. And I can uh, make all my calls. So we all adapt to technology. Yeah. The other thing that um, COVID was a really good uh, accelerant for some change. So, um, you know, we moved to a lot more video and telephone consultation for less acute problems and presentations, and we had reasonably good uptake. We've had a little bit of bounce back since then, but we're still doing more than we were before. But one of the really interesting things out of that process, the clinicians may not have been as keen, but we had really positive feedback from our consumers who really appreciated being able to access their care from home. It's a great change management tool to have consumers who are saying, I actually would like my care to be delivered that way. And so that, that has been really useful. I joined Central Adelaide not long after the move from the old Royal Adelaide to the new Royal Adelaide. This is where sitting in the new Royal Adelaide today. This is the most beautiful building to be able to work from. But the adoption of the building from the staff uh, was challenging around, you know, there are shortcomings with any new build. I also talk about the new Royal Adelaide went from zero to hero in one pandemic mm. because the functionality that was built into this um, building, for which I've even published on with a colleague around how much we could use it to support the pandemic response, and we were the state receiving hospital during the pandemic. Yeah. I don't hear from staff as many grumbles about the building because they could see it operate to its full level. So, you know... Staff can change and adopt, and uh, it's not always easy, but that is possible. Are we starting to make inroads to overcome some of the barriers to using health information around security, privacy, and there's going to be inter interoperability considerations as well. Are we making some inroads towards solving some of those challenges? Data security is a really interesting um, one um, because let me tell you, a medical record with all of your um, uh, medical history in a, in a paper hard copy probably wasn't all that secure either. Uh, they were left on benches and in offices yeah. and often got lost and all of those things that come with a medical record. But we're probably a little bit more heightened about data security with the electronic data. And I get that there are probably levels of sensitivity 
But for me as a consumer, why can I not have my radiology, my pathology results, my, you know, drug history, my history? Because when I move through this disjointed system that we talked about in the beginning, shouldn't I own my own story and be able to share that with people? So um, it's really interesting looking at the My Health Record uh, webpage. The adoption is really increasing over time. I think people are buying into it more and more. Um, But again, talking about our change, there's often a resistance from the clinical world to actually want to lean in. Um, so security of data is is ongoing challenge mm. for us. People still print things. They leave things lying around. Security, you know, security is only as good as the security that it is. I think it is about us all maybe accepting a level of tolerance mm. that it won't all be. You know, it, with anything where, where there's some initial resistance, it needs to be this critical mass or this threshold that's passed where the benefits, the scales tip heavily in favour of the benefits as opposed to the risks. And I guess if I try and put myself in the mind of an average Joe Blow who is concerned that maybe there's data that a potential employer could see as to their background with, say, certain medical conditions, whether there'd be, and there shouldn't be, but whether that could um, inadvertently create some bias for their employment prospects. I absolutely appreciate and recognise that, but there's also probably 99 other people who have accessed more timely care and more appropriate care because we're able to share medical information across different parts of the the business and the organisation. So, you know, there is always that one. Yeah. There's always that one story um, that doesn't maybe always reflect how many times it was got right or where it accelerated improved performance. So I think to your original comment, it is a risk-benefit analysis and I think people should have the choice to opt in or opt out depending on their, you know, there are obviously... People like me who just have fairly generic Mr. Plod type issues, very happy to have an electronic record of my mm. my health. And there might be other people that have things that they're more sensitive about. Yeah. With respect to the, the flow of patients, right, where are the challenges and therefore opportunities to innovate in the through and output stages? Look, the opportunity actually lies in the input. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. <laughs> And why I say that is so most recently in South Australia, SA Health has set up the SA Virtual Care Service. And so they are now working very closely with the ambulance service to try and broker people to the right level of care at the right time. So what we've seen through that is our emergency department presentations have remained fairly static. We have seen some growth at the Queen Elizabeth, but not the same level of growth here as the Royal Adelaide. So they are doing a great job at avoiding uh, work coming to the Royal Adelaide. And if you looked at the numbers, you'd go, well, the Royal Adelaide's not getting any busier. But what we are feeling uh, on the ground is that those services that have been redirected are of a lower acuity nature. Okay. They're being redirected to the urgent mental health um, centre. They're being redirected to general practice. They're being managed at home to find another service tomorrow morning. And so what we feel on the ground is an increasing acuity in the people that are coming a slightly higher or around the same admission rate, but that actually means we are admitting more and they are more sick than we were seeing before. 
obviously we discharge non-sick people, but there's always a, you know, there's a bit in the middle. We feel that there is a higher acuity of patients that we are managing, even though the actual number isn't necessarily increasing. And that slows everything down. Their length of stay is slightly longer. It means that we, we're using more beds than we've ever used before. So I think there's technology opportunities and, as I talked before, modelling opportunities to try and how do we manage the inflow because that's really important. Um, how do we manage planned care and access to outpatients? I can book my hairdresser online mm. with an app but I can't book my outpatients appointment no, online. No. And there's complexity to that, and I certainly understand that. But how could we better adopt some of that technology? Um, throughput and output, again, you know, I'd like to look at production planning models. How many new nursing home beds do we need on any given day? And how could we proactively plan for that? Um, what are virtual technologies for us to be able to support nursing homes or general practice or country, how could we do better virtual services to support those to keep those people in place rather than having to come into the city, mm. come out of the nursing home, leave the general practice? So virtual types of care. Yeah. We've got a technology element here where we talk about potentially there's wearables that people can be sent home with, but then there's the community care element of it where we should start to probably wrap our heads around care in place, hospital in the home and those sorts of things. We do that now. We have a very large hospital in the home program. It includes a geriatric component, includes a rehab component and includes a mental health component. And obviously ongoing improvements in technology, even technology about security for our staff who are out and visiting uh, in the community. Um, you mentioned wearables, so we're, we're exploring at the moment the use of wearables technology to see how we can better uh, manage and monitor things like falls. Uh, we're involved in a project to try and predict the sorts of factors that might contribute to incidents that occur on our wards. And most recently, we're in the process of implementing software called the Ainsoft Deterioration Index, which helps us predict where patients are deteriorating through data so that we can pick it up early to avoid the need for them to have to go to ICU. That helps reduce length of stay, creates a little bit more capacity that in turn helps with our throughput. Is it a case of you pull a couple of levers and make some small adjustments and the whole system just hums along or are there potential knock-on and downstream things that could have a detrimental effect somewhere else? What's the what's the balance going to be? We don't have to fix every problem. We don't have to change the whole throughput, input and output all at the same time. But what's the sweet spot, do you think? Oh, I don't think there is a sweet spot. Um, I think every lever you pull uh, has a, a knock-on effect somewhere. So SA Virtual Care is a good example of that. They're doing a great job at avoiding work, uh, coming to tertiary and quaternary hospitals, but now we're seeing this increasing inacuity. And we wouldn't have predicted that. So yes, I think there is always a knock-on effect. Um, We probably become less risk adverse as time goes Mm. on. So whereas we might have discharged someone a couple of years ago, we sometimes keep them in another night. Yeah, so there is always uh, unanticipated either benefit or it can be an unanticipated problem. 
The Central Adelaide Local Health Network is the largest of the LHNs, but my presumption would be, Catherine, that in order to get political support at premier level, um, ministerial level, we probably need to demonstrate some changes at um, all those other sites, so the Northern Women's and Children's Health Network, Southern Adelaide. And so there's probably different demographic considerations for those as well. You know, one of the challenges we have is that as Central Adelaide is the largest local health network, we also provide the the largest proportion of high-end service um, so we are more expensive. We have the largest share of ambulances. We have the largest share of emergency department presentations. We have the largest proportion of beds. So there is a view that if you fix Central Adelaide, you know, if if we got Central Adelaide improving and we were financially more on track if our ambulance transfer and ramping times were down, that you would fix the whole system. But you're absolutely right. In a state the size of South Australia, we all depend on each other. Mm. And we we sort of go back to those levers. If you just get one functioning really well, um, you will get flow on from the dysfunctioning. So all of the systems. And it's not just the state systems. It's that link between federal and state in terms of primary care and acute care, how do we work better and integrate better, which is the point of the podcast, mm. Where what are the technology opportunities Bingo. that can help make integration better? Yeah, absolutely. Spot on. So where do you think researchers plug in to support the endeavours of the local health networks? We have been talking about that opportunity around modelling, about predictive analytics, um, about the use of AI, wearables, all of those technologies. I think one of the challenges is that how do you harness innovation and what I'm seeing is almost grassroots innovation and it's coming from the ground up, which is exactly how you want innovation to occur and it occurs in pockets. But um, the benefit that we will get from all of this work is if we can better align it. And how do we get each individual project to learn from the other? Mm-hmm. How do we get each project to take us the next step on? Um, I, I do feel it's a little bit disjointed. And so I think the opportunity is for the academic uh, sciences, the healthcare service providers to work better and more collaboratively to coordinate. And to the point of this podcast, what are the problems that really need solving and how do we invest energy, resources and money around those really critical problems that are going to deliver the most benefit, then layer it out. That's perfect. And that's music to my ears. The universities have had the merger between the two larger state-based universities on the table. And part of that will bring really good complementarity between pharmaceutical innovation, medtech innovation, design principles, surgical specialties, the allied health and other types of primary care. Um, So that's going to really streamline that end-to-end continuum of care and the innovation that's plugged in at the beginning of it. I'd like to see a central physical hub where those stakeholders are able to co-mingle and start to discuss, have water cooler conversations around the sorts of things we've been talking about, which are very complex challenges. 
But unless you get people together, and as you say, it's very segmented, very siloed. We've just started to dip our toe in that water. I mean, obviously, we have a very uh, close working relationship with both Adelaide Uni and Uni SA, but we have just conceptualised a thing called Digital First, a problem-solving factory. So we want to try and better bring together the brain's trust and the service providers where they have a problem and try to work through designing through all of those things that you've just talked about, designing the solution that will fit the problem. But we also want them to think digital first as the solution to the problem. So rather than the nurses on the floor doing a piece of work and trying to work out how to shuffle a piece of paper around, could we prosecute a digital solution first And if that doesn't work, we'll go to the piece of paper. But maybe there's something in that digital space. We want to bring in academic and university sector. We want to bring in providers. And, you know, we've got this great big opportunity to be such a big test tube to try and uh, merge some of that thinking together and do it in a coordinated way that is visible and transparent and where, again, we prioritise investment, which is the one that's going to help solve the problem of the day Mm. rather than us all off doing little bits and pieces where the sum of the parts don't make up the whole. So the hardest part of that's going to be sort of hurting everyone and all the right people, right? But again, to your point before, the state has a competitive advantage in that we have this proximity of our hospitals, clinicians in it, access to patients, conducting clinical trials, reaching back in and doing research in a university where a lot of the uh, foundational and innovation takes place. So I wanted to highlight the point that as well as the the value chain proximity, there's the physical proximity of what a university and um, research institutes and the landscape in South Australia provides to your point of a test tube, test bed kind of environment. So that reach through is the point I really wanted to make. Yep, absolutely. And we're really lucky here, uh, sitting in the Royal Adelaide, about being part of the Adelaide BioCity precinct uh, with the universities. But don't forget that we also have down at Queen Elizabeth the Basil Hetzel Institute. So we have another little precinct that emerges down there about that integration of academic research, clinical practice, um, co-located in close proximity. And it really does help and, and make a difference. But sometimes you can be really close to each other physically and yet still be miles apart in terms of problems and solutions. Brilliant, Catherine. Thank you so much. Um, Just to summarise what we've covered off today. So we've talked about the different roles and responsibilities of government in providing health services and infrastructure. We've talked about the complexities of different stakeholders within the system, a lot of the decision-making that goes on around that. We've talked about how Central Adelaide Local Health Network is not only looking after patients in an emergency department and and through the inpatient, outpatient area, but also out in community as well. Um, And we talked about the integration with the broader community-based services as well. There's a whole bunch of challenges. There's a whole bunch of people who are really good problem solvers. And hopefully by tuning into this episode, they've got some insight that helps them steer their research and their innovation in the right direction. Thank you again and appreciate the chat. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode. Be sure to subscribe to It's Not All Academic on your favourite podcast platform. And don't forget to spread the word. Together, let's open our eyes to the incredible world of applied innovation.